0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levine.
1: Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and from around the world. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, for the Pacifica Radio Network. The conflict in Ukraine is referred to by many on social media as a crowd-funded war. Our guest, Mark J. Lindquist, is an American Air Force veteran who now lives in Kyiv, Ukraine, and exemplifies this. He is one of numerous independent, self-funded volunteers who run small, nimble organizations and cooperate in a network and give life-saving assistance to Ukrainian civilians and soldiers. They go to places near the front and do what large nonprofit organizations cannot. These small volunteer groups have become a vital life-saving part of the Ukrainian defense struggle. Mark delivers clothes, equipment, and other necessities to the front lines in the Donbas region. He is a fundraiser for his tax-exempt nonprofit organization called the A-Team. He's also a musician, entertainer, and social media influencer. And during the course of this conversation, he describes how he has used those talents towards moments of relief from war for Ukrainians. This program is the second of two interviews with Mark. We begin with the clip from the first interview when he explained how he manages to live in Kyiv and his organizing work there with the other volunteers.
0: I get a little disability payment from my time in the military that I pay my bills with. And it's enough to go around over here because the American dollar is so strong. I rent a $250 two-bedroom apartment in Ukraine. Coffees that would cost $5 at Starbucks cost you 99 cents here. And so I'm able to pay my own expenses. I've spent every dollar that I had for my business and savings. And I'm not special doing that. I'm not special at all doing that. Every volunteer out here who's done long-term work has spent all of their savings to the tune of tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to source supplies because we have to buy it. And so those are the challenges we're trying to, to overcome. And it is harder now, but my perspective is that it is the little guy, the small NGO, the the unaffiliated independent volunteer underneath no heading of an NGO that is able to do the best and most work out here. Because we're willing to go to Bakhmut. We're willing to go to Kramatorsk. And I have friends that went to Sloviansk, Lisa Chansk, several Donetsk, out in the Donbass. These are cities out there in the Donbass. Quite honestly, it's a grueling trip. There's military checkpoints along the way. A lot of the roads are not great. So you sometimes you can only drive 30, 40 miles an hour. The country has many hills. And so you get behind a truck uh, that can't go more than about 40, 50 miles an hour because they don't have trucks like we know. And you'll get stuck behind a caravan of, you know, 50 cars for 40 kilometers. The trains that would normally take four hours from Lviv to Kyiv, four hours from Kyiv to Kharkiv, are now taking six to eight because of the congestion with military traffic. And you have to be inside your house at 10, 11, or 12 p.m. because of curfew. And so it's quite difficult to travel over here, but you endure it because what you have in the back of your car is something that'll save a guy's life. And we don't see humanitarian aid organizations with big names out there, largely because I don't think their insurance policy will let them travel there, and their policies won't allow them to support frontline units. So it's got to be done by veterans like myself and civilians who understand that if Russia takes one more inch, there's going to be more refugees and suffering. If Ukraine keeps that inch, there's going to be less refugees and less suffering. And so independent operators that don't operate with this red tape are able to do that. Um, I just wish I had the millions of the big NGOs.
1: Since we're talking about this right now, what's the address where our listeners can send
0: things to you? The easiest way to do is just Google my name. You'll come up with my website. It's markjlindquist.com backslash Ukraine. My address in Fargo is there where people can send aid. And whenever I go back home, I pick up three or four suitcases full of aid and I hand carry it over because a year into this operation, still the fastest way to get aid over is to carry on a commercial ticket. These days, unfortunately, the airlines have stopped giving us free humanitarian baggage. And so... If people do donate, you know, a, a large sum of aid, we're asking also, could they get a friend to donate $100 so we can pay for an extra bag when we come over?
1: You're fundraising to the world from Kiev, but not within Ukraine,
0: I assume. We have to remember that Ukraine is going through a Great Depression-style economic crisis that is double our Great Depression. Imagine if the United States of America had to fight World War II in the 1930s. That's what it's like over here, times two. And so everybody is tapped out. Everybody has been trying to save the lives of fellow Ukrainians for the past year, and they don't have any money. All the volunteer organizations I work with, all they need is money to do the job that they want to do and have to do. And so um, I will be in the future trying to step into my strength zone, right? Communication, telling the stories. I'm a storyteller. I'm a professional storyteller. I'm a public face and public figure. And so I will be a conduit for the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian NGOs and give them a connection to the American people and money they may not have. And so be doing a podcast, be doing a radio show, doing social media, trying to fulfill these needs of lists that I get 30 of them every single day. Uh, and connecting donors back in America to those things that are needed today. And if Americans don't act upon it, it, it it's not coming.
1: There is a, a Twitter famous picture of you with a bunch of Ukrainian guys, and you're in the middle with your shirt off with, <laughs> uh, with a tattoo across <laughs> your chest that says, I am Ukrainian. Yes. Tell us about that.
0: Well, the story behind I'm Ukrainian, it originated with a T-shirt. Now, there might be more backstory that I'm not aware of, but one of the most popular T-shirts in Ukraine right now is this black and white T-shirt that just simply says, I'm Ukrainian. Because what Americans may not know or understand is that you haven't always been able to be proud of being Ukrainian in the history of Ukraine. You know, Russia calls Ukraine the little brother, maybe treats them as second-class citizens for crying out loud. Putin doesn't even believe Ukraine is a country, Right and now people are learning and speaking Ukrainian when they used to speak Russian. And so pride in being Ukrainian has come to the forefront in this war, even to the point where President Zelensky donned that T-shirt that said, I'm Ukrainian. And so there is a level of pride in being able to say that I am Ukrainian. Now, I am not. I'm an American citizen. But in the free world right now, Of the 1.6 billion people that live on earth in what we would call free countries, in my estimation, there is one leader of the free world, and that is the Ukrainian society. Right now, they are acting as free citizens should and would were they under fire. And so the example of the Ukrainian citizen, the volunteers that I work with, I work with the best of society. I, an American citizen, want to be like a Ukrainian, want to be Ukrainian. And so... I tattooed that on my chest in Kyiv the other day. It only took me two hours off in an afternoon, and I just wanted to show Ukrainians that there was an American that wasn't going to leave their side.
1: Who are the guys standing around you, and where are you in that picture? It's so full of joy, and it's kind of clear that these guys standing around you, they're not soldiers,
0: so that's at a local mechanic shop, Manic Mechanics up in Kiev, where we've gotten a lot of our volunteer vehicles fixed. And so they've helped us out almost nonstop since last July. And I was talking through Google Translate with one of the mechanics. I can't speak Ukrainian well yet. And so he said that he had seen me on the news. And then I, I just wanted to share one more thing with him. And I took my shirt off. And you should have seen the guy's face because everybody knows the T-shirt. right? And so they wanted pictures and selfies with me. This mechanic... You know, dirty hands, been working with his hands his whole life. The guy's probably never taken a selfie in his life. But he wanted a picture with the American who was standing with him and his country. And he got all the rest of the mechanics out there to take a group picture. And so it was just a moment of of joy. And I'm proud to have done it 60 years from now, when I'm 100 years old, I will look back at that tattoo and be proud of what I've done here in Ukraine, standing for freedom and being on the right side of history.
1: Well, you have the most extraordinary, beautiful energy. Thank you. You could be, I don't know, playing jacks on the (laughs) the pavement and you would draw a crowd.
0: (laughs) And honestly, I get to visit a lot of volunteer centers. You know, everybody that knows that I'm in town wants me to see their efforts. And a lot of times I deliver to those volunteer centers that are working so hard. And, you know, many times people out in the Dunbas say, what is an American doing way the heck out here? Well, you know, what are you going to do as the American showing up out in the Donbass or somewhere in Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, supporting the volunteers and the helpers? You're not going to show up and complain. You're not going to show up and be all downtrodden. Be the person who brightens their day. Sometimes I, I, I'm not able to bring as much aid as I would like because we didn't have the donations to back it up. But you can bring your presence, your smile, your energy, your upbeat attitude about we can help, we can get this done. And that's also a gift you can give as a Westerner who comes to help your presence and your smile. And so I always take an extra measure of effort to ensure that I've got my happy face on, which is natural to me anyway. I've never seen
1: a photo of you where you're not beaming. So (laughs) it's true. Now, Mark. I would love to get into some of the other things about you besides the extraordinary aid and assistance you provide. Could you start by telling us about your childhood?
0: Absolutely. So my family is, you know, a page out of a storybook. I was born in 1981 in Seoul, Korea. And you got to remember, Korea in the early 80s is not the Samsung Times Square-looking place that we know of today. (laughs) It was largely in rural Korea, a third-world country. And until Jimmy Carter started to pour aid into that country, then it became the the $1.8 trillion economy and trading partner we know today. And so in the early 80s, Korea couldn't take care of their babies, and they sent thousands of children overseas. I was one of those kids that started out life in an orphanage and then was brought to America at age eight months. So on March 5th of 1982, I landed at Minneapolis St. Paul International Airport and was adopted by the Lindquist family. So I grew up in rural Minnesota on a farm. The only thing I've ever known or remember is life in America. And once I got old enough to appreciate the fact that, man, life could have gone a lot differently for me, I really just started to take action based on that gratitude for the life that I've been given serving in AmeriCorps, serving in the United States Air Force, now serving in Ukraine, recognizing that for one human life, the gift of freedom and being brought to a country that enjoys freedom is a gift you can never repay. And so uh, I've tried to align my actions in my life you know, with, with that circumstance, and uh, my service in Ukraine is certainly part of that.
1: What's it like for an Asian child to grow up in rural Minnesota?
0: For me, it was quite wonderful and without incident. And I know that life for a minority, a racial minority could have gone a lot differently in rural America. But for my home community of Ortonville, Minnesota, population 2000, I can honestly say without stretching any truth that I really was never treated any differently than any other kid in town. Maybe it was because I came as a young baby. Maybe it was because my family has a high level of respect in the community for the good volunteer work they do. Maybe it was because there were two other South Korean kids that came before me in Ortonville. We were the only minorities in town. There were two kids from Seoul that were in my sister's class in the class of 1996. I was the class of 1999. And so they kind of paved the way for me, maybe, and made it somewhat normal to have a kid from Korea be a part of the school system in the community. And so... I was embraced and supported and allowed to be me. And, you know, as an entertainer and as I kind of found my voice uh, as a singer and performer, that kind of goes hand in hand, is that if they're going to be looking at you anyway, because let's be honest, if you're the Asian kid in the room in rural Minnesota, everybody knows that you're in the room (laughs) and remembers you, right? Right. And, And so then you turn that into a life on stage where you don't mind that kind of attention and um, try to have a sense of humor about the fact that I'm the Asian kid in rural Minnesota and um, have been able to turn it into a positive, for sure.
1: You are listening to Ukraine 242 on the Pacifica Radio Network. I'm Anne Levine reporting from WMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Mark J. Lindquist, a U.S. veteran, volunteering Ukraine, Motivational speaker, and as you'll hear, an accomplished music performer. Thank you for tuning in. Now, Mark Lindquist, you mentioned that you're a public speaker, a communicator. I will add to that an extremely colorful personality.
0: <laughs> and, you know, uh, yes, that's the life of an entertainer, right? Absolutely.
1: I have been very anxious to dive into this
0: subject with you.
1: Would you tell us about your big band?
0: It, it, it's... I'm a dreamer, right? I love to uh, have a goal and see if I can figure it out how to make it happen. And so I was given a Frank Sinatra greatest hit CD on a road trip in high school. And I fell in love with Frank Sinatra's music. You know, at the time, all my friends were, you know, heavy metal rockers and listening to the screaming music. And I was just like, that's really not for me. You know, I've, I grew up singing in the Zion Lutheran Church, you know, in the church choir. So Frank Sinatra's soothing <laughs> tunes were more appealing to me. And so I really became a big band fan. You know, Glenn Miller, Bobby Darin, Dean Martin, and of course, Frank Sinatra. And after I went on a world tour with the United States Air Force in a USO-style show, that, that was age, age 31, my last year of the military, I really just said, man, maybe, maybe I have a gift in the form of music and performance on stage. And so once I left the military in 2012, I set a goal to try to figure out how to put together a big band, try to figure out how to put together a life on stage. And so post-military, I did what every aspiring entertainer does. You move to Fargo, North Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) And through some connections, through some small engagements with the local symphony orchestra, through singing the national anthem at the local sporting events, you become known as the singer and was able to pull together a 17-piece big band and uh, put that on stage around the country. And so it takes a lot of work. I produced the show. I sold the tickets, rehearsed the band, and and the whole thing. But having one world tour under my belt, I felt confident enough to do it. And you don't see big bands often enough these days. It's it's a rare thing. And so I think it's really something that the community enjoys when I have time to put it together. And so I did the big band concerts in America, but then I also did a Sinatra big band concert with a 12-piece band here in Kharkiv, Ukraine, in the midst of the heaviest bombing oh, last summer. Oh my
1: goodness! You're kidding. Yeah, it
0: was it, it was a big band bunker concert, and we did it safely in the one of the safest bunkers in town. We were very careful about how we advertised the program, so as not to find saboteurs at our door. And my point was, the USO is not operating over in Ukraine because the American military is not boots on the ground over, and it's a pretty hot war zone. There's a lot of organizations that have decided not to come into the country. And so I understand that during war, you need a brief moment to feel normal. And there's nothing like sitting at a concert or a play or a show and going to that to make you feel like you are normal again. And, and I wanted to give the people of Kharkiv that were experiencing daily bombing, that were experiencing daily missile strikes, I wanted to give them just a few hours Where they could forget about war at the time they'd been going through it for four or five months it was the end of july that we did that concert so five months and it worked people in the hall that day in the bunker they were tapping their feet they were dancing in the aisles they were singing along and they were smiling again and so even though he's passed away frank sinatra's music was able to bring smiles to people in Kharkiv, and we plan to do more of those concerts this year around the country
1: do you have video of that concert?
0: We do. The Kharkiv Media Hub, if you just go on Facebook and search for the Kharkiv Media Hub, that's the government-sponsored Free Press Initiative, and we, they hosted the concert. It's on their Facebook page. You're going to have to scroll back quite a while to July 29th, I think it was, mm-hmm. July 30th or something of last year. But yeah, there's video of that concert. We hired local musicians from Poltava, which is 90 minutes away. And hopefully, we will schedule a concert in Dnipro, the city that's nearest the Donbass, sometime in July. I think I can pull that off. You are amazing, Mark, I've got to say. We're just taking the, the gifts that we have, and every volunteer's doing that. You know, Take the thing that you can bring to the world and see if you can help with it. And as an entertainer, I feel like that's one thing that I can do that is unique good, and I'm uh, more than happy to do it.
1: That's amazing, I've got to say. One other thing, your costumes, when you are performing, are outrageous. You're in (laughs) three-piece sequin suits with three different colors. Yes. Where do you
0: (laughs) get those? Those were left over from my Air Force entertainment days back in 2011, because we wore sequins to the desert. Because the troops over in Afghanistan would come up to us after the shows and say, I know it's silly that you're wearing red sequins, but thank you, because it's the first color we'd seen for a year. Wow. Because in the Middle East, it's just brown and gray and dusty, right? So it was for a purpose. I kept those costumes, and they were in my closet in Fargo, North Dakota. Now, when I planned the big band concert in Kharkiv end of July... I realized I needed a warm-up concert because I haven't been performing for, you know, a couple of years. So I flew back to Fargo, did a warm-up concert with my big band. We raised a bunch of money to ship medical supplies over during that concert. And I picked up my wardrobe and all of my sheet music for the band. And so I took a couple suitcases full of those tuxedos and tuxedo shirts and all of that, ordered a gold sequin vest from Amazon because I wanted the blue and yellow Ukrainian flag color when I'm on stage. And so I had to hand-carry that over to Kharkiv, and uh, bring that for our shows. And so that's how I got it into the country.
1: <laughs> outrageous. You are outrageous. Now, Mark, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us about the difficult time you went through with depression.
0: Sure. That's something that I've dealt with most of my adult life. I'm not a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist, But my own experiences are, it's a lot like being an alcoholic, which I am not. But, you know, once you've experienced severe depression, suicidal thoughts, as I have, then you're kind of always at risk of going back to that. Many times I I have no depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts. But COVID 2020, as a uh, nationally touring entertainer, doing 100 gigs a year, traveling 300 days a year, and all of a sudden that ended one day in March of 2020. I kind of languished for six or eight months and was frustrated by the government response to something so important. And so I decided to mount a campaign for the United States Congress because I figured I could do better than these clowns. And so I probably bit off more than I could chew. I've never been a politician before. The pressure just became too much. And in the midst of that, I realized the system was not what I thought it would be, meaning changeable. And so I I did find myself in a deep rut, and I checked myself into the Fargo VA, July of 2021. I would said, I need help. I'm thinking about hurting myself. I know these thoughts won't go away without some professional assistance, and spent a few nights there at the mental health ward, and then publicly told friends about that and in the news, because somebody else is in that same situation, too. And I figured if they saw their buddy, Mark, who is a public face and usually upbeat and happy... Going through these same things, maybe they wouldn't feel so alone. And so I've been open about that and am an advocate for mental health and mental wellness. And so when I embarked on this mission in Ukraine, I found that my way of coping with this depression and and these bad thoughts are to work toward a goal. And certainly the immediacy of the goal of saving someone's life in Ukraine has been just the thing that it takes me to outrun that rut. And that mental struggle. So been doing great this year. Doesn't mean I'm not tired, but at least I'm not depressed. Because the work that we're doing is so important, you don't have time to worry about your own troubles.
1: Three days, as an inpatient, sounds like a short period of time to me. How long did it take you in total to fully pull out of that depression?
0: It was a few months. Through some therapists online, reading through my notes, from therapy sessions I had done in Phoenix, Arizona, from the VA down there, you know, was able to get myself back in the right track. But it did take a few months. I found this wonderful company called BetterHelp. They're an online therapy program. You do video chats with licensed therapists. They pair you with the right one. You can test out different therapists, and it's a monthly fee. And so I was in a position financially to be able to do that. And this sounds silly, but I had the luxury of being unemployed And not have to worry about raising a family and and doing a job. So my uh, remedy was probably accelerated because I had the time to work on it.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you share that information because it's such a widespread problem. And every time a public figure talks about it, it helps a lot. So thank you for being open about it. What do you see yourself doing when this war
0: comes to an end? You know, somebody asked me if I was going to continue to live in Ukraine post-war, and I hadn't thought about it before. But upon some reflection, I said, "Well, if we, if I don't live here post-war and enjoy the freedom we fought for, what am I doing?" And so uh, this week, I'm applying for my green card, permanent residency in Ukraine. I can't get the citizenship yet because I don't know the language well enough. But I will live here full-time until victory. And I know that's an open-ended commitment. But like I said, financially, I'm able to do that. And I just feel like the work is not even close to done yet. And so whether this war lasts another three, six, nine months, a year or two, I've committed to be here. And then once we win, all my Ukrainian friends, we've been talking about... What are we going to do to celebrate victory? We're going to go to a dacha in the Carpathian Mountains. We're going to swim in, in the lake. We're going to you know, take a sauna. And we're going to enjoy the freedom that we worked so hard for. So anything after that is just your best guess. I don't know. Right now, we got to win a war.
1: That is the perfect place to end this interview. Thank you for everything, Mark J. Lindquist. You are... Wow, you are an extraordinary human being, and I'm honored that you've taken this time to speak to me.
0: Thank you. I'm singing, there's a bell up in my brain that's ringing, making a crazy ding dong. And if that band don't desert me, there's nothing in the world can hurt me, long as I'm singing my song. Give me trumpets, legato, put some saxes with them, bones, staccato, and some rhythm. As long as I'm singing, and the world's all right, everything's swinging. Long as I'm singing my song. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mark J. Lindquist, and this is the Harky Fortress Big Band. Tonight you'll hear all your favorite cooner tunes from Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Bobby Darin, and of course the chairman of the board himself. Mr. Frank Sinatra.
1: Thank you to our guest, Mark J. Lindquist. Mark can be contacted through markjlinquist.com. The music is Mark J. Lindquist and the Heartkeep Fortress Big Band doing As Long As I'm Singing My Song by Bobby Darin. To see pictures of Mark and videos of him performing in the bomb shelter with the Harkiv Fortress Big Band and videos of his 40-hour march, go to ukraine242.com, where you can also access our library of previous shows. Editing of this program by Ursula Rudenberg, Pacifica Network. Recording by Michael Levine. I am Anne Levine, the host and creator of Ukraine 242. Thanks very much for listening. Until next week.